Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, so I'll make a start. Uh, famous last words out of the way to start with. I'm hoping to be brief this morning. Um, and in that end, I'm going to try and be self-disciplined and actually stick to notes. I've gone old school, paper notes that I've annotated and I've put in 14 point print so I can actually read it. So I've not renewed my glasses for about six or seven years. Uh, so Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you are present with us, that in this space now that we are in a space with you and it's not just that you are present but it's that you are for us that that you are not just um present but you are active you are you are willingly active in history that you're willing willingly active uh, within our lives and that you're wanting uh, to do things that you're wanting to participate with us you're wanting us to participate with you that you're not just present but you're present for us so Heavenly Father, we just come into your presence and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would um, illuminate our understanding and help us to know you more and help us to work alongside you more in what you are doing uh, in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so today I'm, I'm talking about Abraham. Uh, so keep a finger in your Bibles in Matthew 5. That's the obvious place to talk about Abraham. Um, so we're building towards this framework of uh, spiritual warfare, quote-unquote, uh, on the basis of God being faithfully with us. So all of the worship songs this morning were, were wonderful uh, in that idea that that God isn't just um, with us, but he's faithful to us. He, he, he's with us in an ongoing way, in an ongoing active way. Um, I've already gone off my notes, so that's not even the first line. Um, so we've had Pete sharing on Adam and Eve, and then we've had uh, Steve talking about Noah. So as you can see, we're working our way uh, through the Old Testament. Uh, so what I'll hope you'll have appreciated from those stories, from Adam and Eve and from Noah, is that Yahweh is always doing something creative, something that restores uh, what has become chaotic and hostile to life. So Yahweh is always about this creative work of orderliness that pushes back against chaos. Um, and I'll unpack that a bit more later. But the way he does it is subversive. It's not meeting force with force. It's never opposing forces like two armies drawn up on a battlefield. Okay, the way Yahweh works is it, it undermines, it subverts what is being established in chaos. Uh, so both Pete and Steve covered some of the uh, comparative creation myths. You know, they both alluded to the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. But if you go uh, to the British Museum or if you care to look up uh, on, online, you know, on Wikipedia and all that, you can see the same patterns in Egyptian creation myths, in Assyrian creation myths, in Persian creation myths. All of that area, all of the creation myths are all very similar. Uh, but somehow the, 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 the Old Testament creation myth is completely different. It, it's so subversive. And I hope that um, you really caught hold of what Steve and Pete were both saying in, in both uh, of their pieces on Adam and Eve and Noah. Uh, Yahweh is vastly different to all of the gods that were proclaimed. Uh, there is no precedent for the God of Israel. He, he is not another of a same, similar type. Like They didn't get their ideas from somebody else. They didn't look at Babylon and say, oh, we want a God like that. Yahweh is completely unique and original. And he's completely alternative and subversive to all of the ways that they arrange themselves. Um, and, and Yahweh, God, our Jesus Christ, 
is completely alternate and subversive to the way that the world has sought to arrange itself. Okay, and I'm going to use that phrase a lot, the way the world arranges itself. Okay, so when you read in the New Testament, when you see the, the word world, most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time it comes from this word cosmos. So you recognise that. And that, that isn't um, the, 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 the geographical location, that's not the earth in space. That's the arrangement of things. Literally, cosmos means arrangement of things. And so the world, we see that there are structures. Um, so like we have socio-economic political structures. We have geographic structures. So we have things like uh, uh, national boundaries and stuff. The way that the world is sought to arrange itself is alternate and different to the way Yahweh wants to order the world. Okay? <clears throat> I'm not going to impact that. That's a massive topic. But hopefully you'll see where I'm going. So this subversive and alternative way of being within the arrangements of the world, so being in the world, but not of it, um, it's an alternative way of viewing and relating to power, how we, how we work around and with and within power. Um, I'm going to use the word subversive, alternate, other, a lot. I'm also going to use words like um, mutuality and stuff like that later on as well. Um, we might describe this otherness, so the otherness of God within the way that the world is... A, organizing itself we might call that holiness okay so holiness isn't oh, i can't touch it because it's so sacred it's it's absolutely other it's absolutely different so if you've ever heard um tim hughes or matt redmond talking about worshiping holiness uh, and probably bethel and Hillsongs as well they always talk about the otherness of god and it's not this alien other it's this alternative subversive other it's not we can't touch it it's just so vastly different and so about something different, that that's what makes it other. And this holiness, this otherness, is all rooted in loving relationship. It's not love as an abstract. It's always love in relationship with something. So one of the things I want to draw about, out about Abraham is this loving relationship. Um, so, we are going to work our way to Abraham in about five, ten minutes. <laughs> um, so what I want to do is, in our thinking right now, I want to bring together... Uh, the story of God, so that's the story of his enduring loving kindness throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. You know, this is a massive, coherent story. You know, there are some, like, weird bits that we, that we stumble on. But in general, the sweeping narrative of God is a coherent story of this loving relationship. So I want to hold that. And it fi- that story finds its culmination in Easter. You know, so we're working towards Easter, aren't we? It's Lent. So um, it finds its... Um, sharpest articulation in the Easter narrative but this is what God has been doing from the very beginning so one of the themes that you'll catch from from whoever speaks on this whole story you know working from Adam all the way up to, to Jesus it is it's a coherent narrative and it's all about love uh, so what how does that story interact with how we live and move and have our being in this world um, how we, as a church, as a resurrection community, you know, the Rowan Williams uh, sort of phrase from his new book, we are a resurrection community. So how does the God's story interact and intersect with what we're doing as a community in this world? How, and, and what we're doing as individuals in our individual places in this world? You know, how do we live in this arrangement of the world but not be of it? So that's where I'm, I'm kind of hoping to get to. So first of all, just as a parenthesis, uh, the Old Testament is not separate to the New Testament, okay? It's a really, really unfortunate way of naming this thing. This is a testament, the whole lot. Um, 
by naming it old and new, we have this temptation to separate them and say they're not a part of a continuous story. And we can uh, denigrate one over and above. Uh, we can push one down, denigrate it, and then lift one above. This is a consistent story that it finds its articulation in Jesus. So the, the most prominent place, like Steve was saying last week, you know, if we want to understand what's going on, everything's a little bit foggy. You remember his mud in the, in the, in the, in the box, in the window? But Jesus, we see a, a, a sharper, more focused picture of what's going on. But nonetheless, the whole story all points to that. And Jesus is the f- fulfilment of the Torah. And I'm going to use, and I'm going to uh, advocate for using words like the Torah for the Old Testament, not the law, because bad theology hangs off a bad understanding of what the law means. Okay, so this is one consistent story. And so I say all of that to say this. Jesus is not doing a new thing. He's about doing a very old thing. The thing that was going on at the very beginning in Genesis 1. Uh, But because it got lost or misunderstood or misinterpreted or misconstrued or hidden or adopted and adapted into the way the world has arranged itself, when we stumble across it, it's also a very new thing. So Jesus is not about doing a new thing, but it is a new thing. And that's why John, in in 1 John, he can say and, and talk about it like this. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new commandment that is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that I am in the light while hating a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness. So that's in 1 John. And so what John's doing there is contrasting the ways of being a Jesus follower, being a member of the resurrection community, and the ways that the world works, Okay, it might be a bit dense because John likes saying the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, but basically, <coughs> it's polemical, isn't it? It's setting up a them and us. There are those that are in the darkness and those that are in the light. And these are the characteristics of those that are in the darkness. And these are the characteristics of those that are in the light. And sometimes we get very awkward when we, we have polemical statements from the pulpit. Um, you, can simply, you simply cannot be a follower of Jesus and be hateful. Okay, now that's a big statement, isn't it? But this is subversive. We think this is actually, this is the way the world works, isn't it? We establish a them and us. And I'm better because I'm not them. Okay, so John is establishing these same polemical categories of them and us. Uh, we find these categories today, you know, we might uh, be political and, and say, you know, we have the remainer and the lever. Or in America, you might have the red and the blue. Uh, or you could have the left and the right. John identifies the other, the opposition. But the thing is what John does, and what Jesus does, and you'll recognise Jesus throughout all of this, is that he cuts that polemical nature, that venomous thinking, right off at the knees. He subverts it completely, because what he says is, you cannot hate them. You cannot hate your enemy. So we will live in the world and have a venomous categories, but the problem is, is you cannot hate them, you cannot distance them, you cannot push them away and that's absolutely contrary to the way the world is arranged and we only have to look at our Facebook feeds or the news 
to realise this because if you're a Remainer, well, all the Leavers are obviously very stupid and have been duped. They've just bought into lies and they're thick. 50% of the population in this country is subpar in their understanding of the way the world works because I'm a Remainer and I can say that. But then the Leavers will say, that's all liberal nonsense. We want our country and our culture back. The Remainers are just, just being silly. They, they don't want this country back. They should all go somewhere else or something. And then the, you know, the Remainers will say, well, you're all racist bigots. And it's a them and us. Whereas Jesus weighs in, and John articulates it really well. He says, well, there is a them and us. I'm not going to lie to you. There is. But you're supposed to love them until they become an us. You can't hate anybody. You can't say that you're on this side and hate someone else. You can't say that you're on the side of Christ and push those people away. Those people. Nope. You have to love them until they become this. Not until you transform them or until you change them. You just have to love them while. That's all you've got to do. I just simply cannot hate them. I cannot denigrate them. I cannot call them a stupid lever or a racist lever or a liberal remainer. I cannot write them off. I have to love them. I have to embrace them. I have to approach them until we're not stood opposite each other, but we're stood side by side. And so right away, that cuts off at the knees the way the world has arranged itself. There's always this loving relationship. I cannot distance somebody and push them out of a relationship. I have to be proactively seeking the relationship. We always have our in-groups which develop their hard edges by excluding those who are not in. You know, we see it on, you know, you see it with, you, with kids, um, and you see it in adults, unfortunately, behaving like kids. Um, we are not like them, and somehow they are lesser because they are not us. They could be other because of where they come from, their race, their religion, their gender, their orientation, their age, their weight, their, their financial ability, their intellectualness. Intellectualness? Intellectuality? That was ironic. <laughs> By their preference, by whatever, whatever you want to fill in there. You could other somebody by whatever categories you want. And that is how the world is arranged. So that I can feel better about myself because I am not them. And I'll create all sorts of categories to fulfil that. But Jesus says, love your enemy. Reach out to the one and love them that they become part of us because I have loved you. That's what Jesus says. I've loved you. Therefore, the only thing that you need to be bothered about is copying me, is following me, is being like me. But the thing is, God has always been at this subversive work from the very beginning. This is a work of unpicking and undermining and transforming and restoring the violent chaos of the world and and taking that which is hostile to life and turning it into a place where life can flourish. You know, Steve did this in, in Psalm 23. And this is the work of love. So where chaos is separate, it separates, it destroys, it breaks down. Whereas God's work has always been ordering things, rearranging things, putting things back together, making things whole. So from creation that Pete covered, you know, the faith of ancient Israel was completely alternative and subversive to all other beliefs in the beginning. Whereas all of the beliefs, all of the creation myths were chaotic, arbitrary, they were violent, there was just chaos upon chaos, like one god would decide to do this thing and destroy a bunch of things, and this other god would decide to create some monsters so he could beat the other god, 
It's like, where did things stand? Who, who could you trust? What could you rely upon? Nothing, because they were all capricious and, like, unpredictable. There was no order to it. It was chaos and death. You know, but Yahweh, he orders creation in this peaceful way. You know, like, the Spirit hovers over the waters. And it's almost even, the, the, the presence of God in that situation just takes away all of the fear. Like, so the word for, like, um, the war, you know, it's like this, this, this idea of like real chaos and real privation of anything living and anything that could possibly flourish, and yet it just sounds like a gentle lake. Even the presence of God. And the way that Genesis 1 is written is even so beautifully ordered, it's symmetrical, it has like seven words in the first line and 14 words in the next line, and, and it is good is, re- is repeated like 10 times, and all of this, there's, there's a poetry and a symmetry and, and a peace and an orderliness. To even just the very way that it's written. And it's so contrary to all these other creation myths. And then with the flood, as Steve covered, you know, um, in the Enuma Elish, there's a flood. In, in the Egyptian creation narratives, there's a flood. In the Assyrian creation narratives, there's a flood. In the Persian creation narratives, there's a flood. And in, in, in the Bible, you know, it shows that there's this, this hostility, this wickedness is reached. This, this, this chaos has reached a certain point that all of the thoughts of mankind were wicked. There was not even 99%, I'm quoting Steve now, but like not even 99%, it was 100% of the time, all of their thoughts were wicked. It's like chaos has been unleashed again in creation. Things have become incompatible with life and flourishing. And again, God sets out a restorative agenda. He enters into that chaos and brings orderliness again and brings fruitfulness and flourishing. And he makes creation suitable for this life, for this love, for this relationship. And so when, when we come through uh, Genesis, you keep seeing this, this, this promise or this blessing to be fruitful. You know, so he blesses Adam and Eve, he blesses Noah, he blesses Abraham, he blesses Isaac, he blesses Jacob, he blesses Israel as a nation. You know, God, as God's people, as God's resurrection community, we are always about life. We are always about flourishing and never about death and never about chaos. The church is a resurrection community. We are an entity and a force in this world, but not of this world, for life and for flourishing. And everything that we do is undoing death and chaos. Or John says this about what Jesus did. He came to destroy the works of the enemy. Jesus came to kill death. Jesus came to order chaos. He came to destroy the works of the enemy. And if we're at all fuzzy about God's eternal focus on this divine orderliness that pushes back against death and chaos, and that undermines death and chaos with life and flourishing... There's this, like I just alluded to, um, the ubiquity of his fruitful blessing. In Genesis 1.22, he blesses the animals and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 1.28, he blesses Adam and Eve and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 8.17, he blesses the animals again after the flood, saying, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 9.1, he blesses Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 9.7, he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 17.6, he blesses Abraham and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 17.20, he blesses Ishmael. Yes, Ishmael. (laughs) the forgotten son of Abraham, and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 28.3, he says to Isaac, 
be fruitful and multiply. And Isaac repeats that over his son, Jacob, and says, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 35, 11, he says, be fruitful and multiply to Jacob. In Genesis 41, 52, he says to Joseph, be fruitful and multiply. And Joseph reflects and says, I have been fruitful and I have multiplied. In Genesis 47, 27, he blesses the nation of Israel in its fledgling state, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 48, 4, Jacob recounts the story of God's blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication to Joseph. In Genesis 49.22, Jacob blesses Joseph with the same blessing that God gave him of be fruitful and multiply. In Exodus 1, Israel is described as being fruitful and having multiplied. That's only the first book and and seven verses of the Bible. And it goes on, it's in Isaiah, it's in Jeremiah. A prophetic stance saying, you will again be fruitful and multiply. God is a force for life and flourishing against the forces of chaos and death. And we find the sharpest articulation of that in Easter. In Jesus Christ, hung upon a cross, dying, descending into hell, being resurrected and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So, of course, now I'm going to talk about Abraham. (laughs) So that is the background. It brings us to Abraham, the story of God with us and for us. Adam and Eve, Noah, the next stop is Abraham. Um, I'm a big fan of Abraham. Um, before I went, some of you might know this, some of you might not. Before I went to university, I took a gap year uh, and to travel, you know, as you do. Um, I had long hair, so I had to. Um, and, and for some bizarre reason, you know, I felt God called me to go to Israel. I was in a, a prayer meeting at St. James in Stuttgart, and some random American preacher laid hands on me, and I was completely like knocked out on the floor. And the last thing he'd said to me seemed to intimate that I should choose Israel to go to as my gap year. Um, and so I ended up in Israel for a big chunk of that year before university. And I stayed in a kibbutz called Enhash Losha, uh, which is right on the, the Gaza Strip, right on the border of Gaza Strip, so much so that... Uh, um, like so we were a farming community and, and then the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip would steal all of our irrigation pipes we were that close to the Gaza Strip um, but the nearest major town to where I was staying was a place called Besheva so if you're familiar with the story of Abraham Besheva is a key place it either means the well of Oath or the well of Seven and both things occur in the life of Abraham in this place so God makes a, a, a promise to Abraham in that place but also that's where he establishes himself and digs seven wells I think it's in uh, Genesis 18 or something so this was the land I, I got to stay and live for a chunk of a year in the same place where Abraham was and as a result because I was staying on a kibbutz in Israel and, and obviously in Israel they're Jewish <laughs> um, I heard a lot about Abraham because he's so fundamental to the Jewish faith. They call him Avram Avenu, which is our father Abraham. That's how they talk about him, our father Abraham. Um, and a lot gets made of Abraham throughout the Bible, uh, throughout Christianity and, and Judaism, because he is the ancestor of Israel. So if we talk about God, he's the God of our, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham is always mentioned in the context of the nation of Israel, even though he's one guy. It was because the promise came to him, isn't it? That I will make you fruitful and you will multiply and you will become nations. And you will be a blessing to those nations. There's so much uh, made of Abraham that he occupies quarter of Genesis. 
50 chapters in Genesis, Abraham is mentioned in 12 and a half chapters. Quarter of the entire creation narrative of the universe <laughs> is dedicated to Abraham. And similarly, the same amount to Joseph, actually, but anyway, that's by the way. <coughs> so, if the flood marks the high watermark um, of wickedness, things, even though God intervenes, actually, afterwards, if you, if you read Genesis, things don't particularly get much better. There are nine generations after Noah, before Abraham. And, and, and in those nine generations, what they managed to do is build the Tower of Babel. And the only time that God is really active in the story is when he comes down from heaven. So mankind is sought to build this massive tower up to the heavens and God still has to kind of stoop down and peer down and come down and be like, oh wow, that's that's a really big tower, well done. (laughs) So the only time that God is active between Noah and Abraham is to mock this, this, this tiny tower that mankind has built thinking it was ace and you know like when we were looking at judges you know one of the questions was where, where is God in that story and, and, and what was really telling was that he was pretty a- absent from that narrative wasn't he and that's the thing like God is absent between sort of Noah and Abraham and yet all of a sudden when Abraham comes along you know like Yahweh is active so, so the way the story starts for Abraham is at the end of uh, chapter 11, so after the Tower of Babel. And it appears there as if Abraham's dad gets the family. So Abraham and his brother and his, his other brother's um, son gets the family and takes them out of Ur of the Chaldees. But then later on, God says, it wasn't your dad that brought you out. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, and then immediately when Abraham's on the scene, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Abraham. And what I've done, um, what I've done is I went through Genesis, highlighting all the times that God is active with Abraham. So it's the purpose, the nicer, what colour is that? Like violet, lilac? In a lilac colour, a beautiful lilac colour. So this is how often God and Abraham talk in some way. So it's a lot, right? So whereas God was silent or absent or just not included in the narrative, as soon as Abraham comes on the scene, for no reason, for no good reason, Yahweh is in constant communication with Abraham and Abraham is in constant communication with Yahweh. And I wonder... um, because there's this idea, so like at the end of uh, Genesis 11, where it just says, and Terah, Abraham's dad, brought them out of Ur of the Chaldees. And then later in Genesis 15, God says, I was the one that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. And it's almost as if God was active, but there was no awareness that God was active. And this idea of the hidden action of God is shot through the Bible. You only have to think of uh, Jacob's ladder, right? In, in Genesis 35, where Jacob wakes up from his dream and says, behold, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And I wonder if those nine generations between Noah and Abraham, that God was active, but they just didn't respond. Yeah. Yet when God was active with Abraham, Abraham responded. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, God is talking directly to Abraham, and he's saying these magnificent promises as well. And sometimes we construe this as a blind faith, you know, like in the New Testament we talk about, and Abraham left 
this place and he went into another place. And when we talk about it like that's faith because Abraham didn't know anything at all and he, and he just took a risk on this voice. And, it, and he didn't. God was already active. He already had the story of God's action with Noah. He already knew God's faithfulness. And so he didn't take a blind risk. He entered into a proper relationship with this Yahweh. It wasn't, okay, there's a voice talking to me, so yeah, sure, I'll go do the same. It was like, oh, that is the God who was faithful to Noah. That is the God who was faithful to my ancestors. Of course I want to enter into this. Of course I want to be part of this relationship. And the funny thing is, is there's a deep mutuality in this relationship between Abraham and Yahweh. Um, and it's an asymmetrical relationship because, you know, after all, Yahweh is God. And Abraham's just, you know, a guy. And yet somehow, and for some inexplicable reason, Yahweh makes himself vulnerable and contingent on this relationship. He enters into this emotional pie with Abraham. He's a god. Does he need to? Nope. Why does he do it? Is it not, do you not find that strange? The god of all creation, of all universe... He's not just saying to Abraham, do these things for me, serve me. He's saying, I love you. I will rescue you time and again, even if you don't realise that I was working. I'm emotionally staked on this relationship. I'm involved in this relationship. Yahweh is not some distant God. He is emotionally available in our relationships. Don't you find that weird or mind-blowing? The God of all creation isn't just asking us to serve him and do things for him like a king would ask a servant. But he's emotionally wedded in this relationship. You might say he, is, he has skin in the game. Yahweh has taken a risk that he need not have taken. And it's really interesting to see how this relationship pans out. Especially in light of the lack of relationship that's gone before. It's peculiar, it's odd that, that God and Abraham are like this. Like we, we take it for granted because we're so familiar with the story, but it's really bizarre that the God of all creation should be in this intimate relationship with Abraham. God is constantly talking with Abraham. He has these thoughts that get articulated in Genesis. Oh, maybe I should talk to Abraham about that. Why? You're God. You know, Abraham, I'm thinking about doing this thing. What do you think? No, God, that's not like you. Abraham gets to push back at God and say, that's not like you. That's not how I know you. That doesn't seem in line with your character, God. What a bizarre relationship. Why? Why, why does God do this? Does he have to? Nope. Does he need to? Does it, does he, he got some uh, insecurity or some unfulfilled emotional need? Nope. Why does he do it? One of the things that I hope you will have picked up from both Pete and Steve is that it's completely unheard of, a God in relationship with mankind. Humans were to serve the whims of the God. They, they, they would sacrifice to the gods. They would feed the gods. The only thing that humans were required for was killing things to give to gods. The world was specifically arranged to deify chaos and death. How are we going to appease this God? Well, we'll kill something. Will this God show up for us when we, need, when we need crops? I don't know. Let's just kill something. Oh, there was a flood. Or there was a drought. Maybe we just need to kill more things. 
There was no coherence to creation. There was no orderliness to it in the way everybody else understood it. And yet, yet Abraham and God had this deep relationship. Yahweh is this constant companion to Abraham. Abraham moves around and he's always talking to God. He's always doing something with God. Abraham thinks of God. He does this in response to God. God thinks of Abraham. He talks to Abraham. He tells Abraham to do really cool things. Or really stupid things. Abraham does really stupid things and God rescues him. Like he does it twice where he says, yes, Sarah, uh, she's my sister. He does it twice. And God bails him out both times. God is present for God isn't just present to Abraham, he's present for Abraham. He's actively working on behalf of Abraham to bless him, to make him flourish, to enable him to be fruitful. God, Yahweh is this constant and consistent force for life and flourishing for Abraham. Okay, Yahweh's not just present, he's present for Abraham to do these blessings that he's given him. Yahweh doesn't just say some nice words to Abraham. Yeah, go go be fruitful, multiply. Go on, run along. He actually enables that to happen. He creates an environment for Abraham where that is possible. He doesn't just give these words. He enables those words to be active in history. Why does he do this? It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart upon you and chose you. For you, in fact, were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. Why did God do it? Because of love. Because God is faithful and loving. I promised somebody else that I'd do this for you. And I've been faithful to that. Through the generations of time, I've been faithful to that promise. Why? Because I love. And we know this. Why? Because God so loved the world. It's all in love. Ever since the beginning. Why? Love. God is continuously subverting the chaotic and deathly ways the world has arranged itself. So, in Abraham's life, look, let's look at the idea of covenant. Let's just do a couple of things with Abraham's life. Um, I won't go too deep in it. Covenant, in the ancient world, was, um, was the way that a powerful entity, so whether that be a king or, or a nation, could formalise the servant servitude of, of people or other nations. Um, so the way it worked, I'm sure you've heard Steve talk about this actually, was uh, that they'd cut the covenant, so they'd hack a bunch of animals in half. The lesser party would walk through this bloody trail to the greater party and say, I'll do whatever you say as long as you protect me. And if I don't fulfil my promises, let me be like these animals. And yet God reverses this completely. So God says to Abraham, okay, let's make covenant. Abraham falls asleep with all these bloody animals on the floor. Abraham falls asleep. So God's presence goes to Abraham. God, the powerful one in the arrangement, makes the walk and makes himself emotionally vulnerable to Abraham. Abraham's asleep. You know, the, 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 the bizarreness and the strangeness and the subversive nature of this couldn't be any more apparent in the text. This completely subverts the ordering of the world that says might is right. The powerful one always gets the say. It undoes that. It undoes the whole idea in creation, in, in, in the way the world has arranged itself, that the powerful can exploit the weak. That the weak are at the whims of the powerful. Even the very way that God makes covenant with Abraham flips that idea on its head. And we see these themes constantly through the Bible. 
fulfilled in Jesus, who dies as a powerless one. The most powerful being in the universe, God incarnate, dies as a powerless one on a cross. And yet, the death on the cross is recognised as the enthronement ceremony. How subversive could we get with that? The one that is enthroned on the cross is the one that is enthroned over everything in all creation. He's the one that stands far above all things, and yet his throne is a cross, where he appears to be the weakest. To stand with the powerless, to serve the last, the least, the lost, and the little, with love, is how we do spiritual warfare. It is being like our faithful, loving God, who is with us and for us. Let's look at the idea of the Akedah. So the Akedah is what the, the Jews call the sacrifice of Jacob. So hopefully you're all familiar with that story, you know, like, Sorry, Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. So hopefully you're all familiar with that story. But God promises Abraham a son, right? And Abraham eventually has that son. And then God asks Abraham to sacrifice that son, which is awkward. Um, And it's really difficult. And it seems really horrific to us, right? I'm going to promise you this child. Now I want you to kill that child. I want you, yourself, to kill that child and give him back to me. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Abraham doesn't blink. Abraham, who's perfectly capable of challenging Yahweh, far be it from you, Yahweh, to do this thing. It's not like you said it with Sodom and Gomorrah. But no. Why, doesn't, why, why isn't Abraham bothered about that? Why isn't he perturbed at all? Well, because child sacrifice was normal. In his culture, in that time, child sacrifice was normal. Oh, of course, my God has been faithful and given me promises. So, of course, how, how do I respond to that? What's the, what's the appropriate way of response? Well, I give him something precious. I give this God something precious back. If it's the son that he's promised me, so be it. Not phased at all. Abraham doesn't seem bothered, does he? Because it's normal. And yet, when it comes to the moment, God appears and says, don't do that. And again, we see Yahweh is subverting this kind of quid pro quo process. Because Abraham lived in a world where, well, of course, if God gives something to me, I have to give something back. And he gave me a son, so of course I give him a son back. That's normal, right? You give me something, and I'll give you something in return. And, you know, we recognise this thinking. So in the positive, it's like, you give me something beneficial and I'll, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But also we see it in the way justice is done. An eye for an eye. Well, you took something from me, so I can take something from you. This reciprocation. And we know this. It isn't just an ancient world thing. This is exactly how society works now, isn't it? You owe me. Even our kids. That's not fair. You have no concept of fair. God undermines that completely in, 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 the, sacri- in, in this, the proposed sacrifice of Isaac. He completely takes away that idea. God introduces this benevolent grace. I gave you a promise and you want to give me something back, but I'm going to fulfill that, pro- I'm going to fulfill that sacrifice. I will provide the sacrifice to myself. Mm. It's all grace. It's all benevolent. Why did God choose Abraham? Because I loved you. Did you do anything? No. I just loved you. It's all grace. God cancels that idea of this, this debt to anybody, that me owing anything, because God acts first. Even though I should owe him everything, he acts first and says, I'm going to give you everything. <coughs> Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5, which is why I said get Matthew 5 open. So verse 38. You have heard it said, 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said that whatever you get, you give back. Exactly the same, whether that's beneficial or, or, or negative. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, because if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anybody wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anybody forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. And, you know, there's an ace rob basket about that, but um, we'll go on with Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. You have heard it said, love your neighbour, and hate your enemy. Just, Jesus is really challenging this whole subversive God thing. But I tell you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on evil and good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are you not even, as the, ta- are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... Are you doing any more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it cuts away that whole kind of uh, reciprocation, that, that mutuality, that back scratching. You do for me, I do for you. You take from me, I take from you. To offer grace, to offer forgiveness, to pour ourselves out in love when it's risky, that is our spiritual warfare. It's being like our gracious, forgiving God, who is with us and for us. How? Why? Because God is like this. Does it always work? No. It really doesn't. Are we at risk of pain? Yep. So why do it then? Because the goal is never a pragmatic goal. It's never practical. We do this because it works. No, we do it because it's like Jesus. Because the goal is never to be successful in the way the world has arranged itself. To be effective. It's to be like Jesus. Everything's all about being like Jesus. Being conformed to Jesus. Jesus is subversive and loving, and can involve uh, and it can following him can involve taking up crosses, but it can also involve walking on water. It can be involved being crucified, but it can also involve healing people. It's the only way that undoes chaos and death lo- loosed in the way the world has arranged itself. I just want to finish with a couple of quotes, and then we're going to move on to communion. So, in a world, and it's from uh, the book that we've been reading in the group that only Matt's read. In a world dominated by indifference, suffering and violence, love is a heroic act of resistance. Spiritual warfare is maintaining this posture of resistance in the face of suffering and evil. Beyond interrupting the world through resistance and solidarity, we can also interrupt the world with acts of inclusion and kindness. If Jesus had a favourite tactic, it was his practice of table fellowship, breaking bread with the outcasts of society. And with that, I want to invite you to be included and inclusive as we take this and remember this is a subversive act of life and flourishing in a, de- in a world of death and chaos so as you take this take on the health the life and the vigour of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and we remember those members of the body that aren't present with us because of sickness or whatever okay so Heavenly Father I pray that you bless uh, this bread and this wine that marks your body broken for us and your blood poured out that we may live move and have our being in you that we could have life and life to the full that we could destroy the works of the enemy in jesus name amen